Okay, well, thank you all for coming. Um, what I want to do today in this talk is try to do three things. Um, I'll try to introdu introduce the ancient philosophy of Stoicism for those who may not so know so much about it. I'll try to say something about its later reception, and I'll also try to say something about the particular books that we have on display at the moment. And so that's quite ambitious for a relatively short talk, but I'll do my best. So let's start at the beginning. The Stoics were so called because they used to meet to discuss philosophical topics at the painted Stoa on the northern edge of the Agora in ancient Athens. And they started to do so sometime around 300 BC, and their founder was Zeno, originally from Cyprus. When Zeno first arrived in Athens, he came under the influence of a philosopher called Crates, who was a follower of Diogenes the Cynic. And in order to understand the origins of Stoicism, it might be useful to say something about the Cynics. The Cynics were famous for their complete rejection of traditional customs and conventions, preferring instead to live as close to nature as they could, hence the name Cynic or dog-like. Diogenes, Crates, and other Cynics held that all of the external things that people typically hold to be important for a good life, things such as money or social reputation, these things have no intrinsic value and that all we need in order to live a good, happy life is virtue. Virtue conceived as an excellent, healthy state of mind. If we have that, then we shall live well, the cynics claimed. Moreover, the knowledge that that is all that we need in order to live well will enable us to face the sorts of external trials and tribulations that will inevitably come along and greet us with a calm indifference. Now, there are two key ideas in what I've just said. First, the idea that only virtue or an excellent state of mind is necessary for living a good, happy life. And second, the idea that we ought to look to nature as our guide when thinking about how to live. And both of these ideas left a big impression on Zeno, and they went on to become central ideas in Stoicism. But Zeno was clearly not entirely satisfied by cynicism, otherwise he would have presumably joined their ranks instead of setting out on his own. And while the cynics offered a very direct and practical philosophy of life, they had less to say about the sorts of theoretical questions that occupy philosophers today. But there are other philosophers in Athens at the time that did address these sorts of questions, and Zeno was keen to study with them as well. In particular, Zeno is said to have spent a number of years as a student at Plato's Academy, where he would have studied a wide range of topics that remain central to philosophy today. Questions about what exists, about what knowledge is, and so on and so forth. But ultimately, Zeno chose not to join the academy either, and decided to set out on his own. We're told that his immediate followers were known as Zenonians, but after a while they came to be known as Stoics 
after the place where they met to discuss philosophy each day. Inspired by elements of both his cynic and his platonic education, Zeno developed his own distinctive philosophy. And in some respects, it seems to us a strikingly modern philosophy. Zeno and the other early Stoics held that all of our knowledge comes through the senses and that the only things that exist are material bodies. There's no immortal soul or afterlife and all that there is, is what we see before us. Nature as a whole ought to be thought of as an organic unity, a living being of which we are parts, preempting some strands of contemporary ecological thinking. So far, so good. Perhaps less modern is the claim that we ought to identify this living nature with God and think of it as animated by a divine spirit or breath permeating everything permeating everything, including us. Indeed, the Stoics identify this breath as the soul of God and suggest that each of our individual souls is literally a fragment of this divine soul. This divine spirit, imminent within nature, is ultimately responsible for everything that happens and is identified with with God's will, with reason, with providence, and with fate. So everything that happens does so necessarily and does so according to a providential and rational plan. Okay, so that tells us something about Stoic physics, how they conceive nature. And when I discussed the cynics a moment ago, I touched on two ideas that would become central to Stoic ethics. One of the distinctive characteristics of Stoic philosophy is its desire to bring these different parts of philosophy together into a systematic whole. Now, I don't have time to go into this in the detail that it deserves here, but let me at least try to join a few dots. As we've seen, the Stoics take from the Cynics the idea that we ought to live in harmony with nature. And as we've also seen, they develop a pantheistic conception of nature. So to live in harmony with nature is to live in harmony with the divine, rational, will. We've also seen that the Stoics think that, we, that all we need to live a good, happy life is a virtuous, excellent mental state. And we can now see that our own mental virtue is a fragment of the divine soul. So the more virtuous and rational we become, the more in harmony we become with the rational principle that guides all of nature. Now, there's one more Stoic idea that I should mention before moving on, and it's the one for which they are perhaps most famous, namely their attitude towards emotions. The word Stoic has entered modern vocabulary as a word referring to the control or suppression of emotion, but the ancient Stoic position is something different. The early Stoics suggests that our emotions are not some separate force within our minds that need to be controlled, but rather that they're simply the product of beliefs that we hold that in turn are the product of judgments that we make about things. If we alter our judgments, our beliefs will change, and so will our emotions. 
One consequence of this view is the claim that our emotions are ultimately within our power. Now, the Stoics go on to claim that many of the harmful emotions that cause people so much distress are, in fact, based on mistaken judgments, and that if we can learn to see why they are mistaken and then stop making them, we'll be able to overcome those emotions. Many of these harmful emotions, the Stoics suggest, arise from judgments about external objects or events, thinking that some event is a terrible thing, or worrying about something that might happen in the future, and so on. But if we accept the claim that it's only our own inner virtue that's what the, that is what really matters for our living well, then we'll see that these external things are in fact inessential, and that we ought not to judge them as good or bad, strictly speaking, at all. And if we can refrain from making those sorts of judgments, judging that external things are intrinsically good or bad, then we won't generate harmful emotions. A slightly later Stoic, Epictetus, who I'll come back to shortly, he adds the thought that these external things are all ultimately out of our control anyway. Whereas the one thing that will guarantee our happiness namely making correct judgments, this is the only thing completely within our control. So if we can grasp this idea and focus our attention on our own judgments, then if we start to make only correct judgments, we shall avoid unpleasant emotions, not be overly concerned about external trials and tribulations, and achieve the virtuous rational state of mind that the Stoics claim is the only thing that can deliver a genuinely good and happy life. Okay, so I hope that gives us at least a sense of what the Stoics thought. I mentioned earlier that Zeno founded the school, and after he died, he was succeeded by his pupil, Cleanthes, who was in turn succeeded by Chrysippus. And in many ways, Chrysippus is the most important of the early Stoics, and much of what I've just described may well have been formulated by him. He was also the most prolific of the early Stoics, and is said to have written over 700 books. Unfortunately for us, more or less all of the works of the early Stoics, including those 700 books by Chrysippus, are all lost. So for our knowledge of the early Stoics and what they thought, we have to rely on summaries and quotations preserved by later ancient authors. However, there have been some more recent discoveries. At the end of the 18th century, fragments from previously lost works by Chrysippus were recovered from the charred papyrus scrolls unearthed at Herculaneum, not far from Pompeii. In some cases, the scrolls literally crumbled into dust not long after being opened, but their contents were thankfully recorded in drawings before they disintegrated. And in the display, we have a reproduction of one of these drawings. The drawing was made in 1802, and it's now held in the Bodleian. And the drawing is the only evidence we have for the text it records, 
because the scroll of which it is a drawing disintegrated. And in this case, the text is called The Logical Questions by Chrysippus. Now, the early Stoics, including Zeno and Chrysippus, were all teaching and writing in Athens in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC. In the 1st century BC, Athens loses its status as the preeminent centre for philosophy, while at the same time, Roman authors such as Cicero make the ideas of the Stoics and other Greek schools of philosophy available to a Latin reading audience. Stoicism soon attracted a number of Roman admirers, and it's in the first two centuries AD that we find what were to become the three great canonical Roman Stoic authors, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. Seneca is famous, or perhaps infamous, for being the tutor of the emperor Nero. And as well as writing a series of philosophical essays and letters, also wrote a series of tragedies. Epictetus, whom I mentioned earlier, was a slave originally from Asia Minor, who found himself in Rome in the service of some grand gentleman, who allowed him very kindly to attend the lectures of a Stoic teacher in Rome called Musonius Rufus. But in due course, Epictetus gained his freedom and went on to found his own philosophical school in Western Greece. And like his great hero and role model Socrates, Epictetus chose not to write anything himself. But thankfully for us, one of his pupils, the historian Arian, wrote up his lecture notes, and these notes form the work that we now know as the Discourses of Epictetus. And Arian also produced a shorter summary of the key ideas from the Discourses um, in a text called The Handbook. And our third Roman Stoic author, Marcus Aurelius, was of course emperor who kept a notebook of philosophical reflections we now know as the Meditations. Now the story of the influence of Stoic ideas is in large part the story of the influence of these three Roman Stoic authors. Although we ought not to forget the importance of other sources such as Cicero, who did much to preserve and transmit Stoic ideas to later generations. Now in the third century AD, Stoicism fell out of favor, eclipsed in philosophical circles by a renewed interest in Plato and Aristotle, and eclipsed in the wider culture as a practical guide to living by Christianity. And while Stoicism did have some influence on the development of both Neoplatonism and early Christian thought, it no longer held the prominent position that it had in previous centuries. And this continued for much of the Middle Ages, although there were, of course, exceptions, such as the 13th century Oxford philosopher Roger Bacon, whose section on ethics in his major philosophical work is little more than a patchwork of quotations from Seneca because Bacon thought that Seneca had more or less got it right already. It's in the Renaissance, and in particular with the Renaissance humanists, that we see a significant revival of interest in Stoicism. The recovery of previously neglected ancient texts, a taste for Latin authors, 
a rejection of the predominant Aristotelian scholastic approach to philosophy, all contributed to a renewed interest in the Stoics. And all of these elements can be seen in the case of Petrarch, writing in the 14th century. Perhaps a little unfairly, Petrarch dismissed Aristotle's great Nicomachean ethics as a tedious book that left him completely cold. In its place, Petrarch read Cicero, Seneca and Augustine, all of whom informed him about Stoicism and led ultimately to him composing his own Stoic-inspired dialogue entitled Remedies for Both Kinds of Fortune. The two kinds of fortune are, of course, bad fortune and good fortune. For Petrarch followed Seneca in seeing unbridled good luck as a very dangerous thing indeed. Dangerous because it lulls us into thinking that the external goods that it brings really are goods, when in fact only virtue is genuinely good. Now, Stoic texts and ideas circulated widely in the 15th century in both manuscript and print. On display, we have a Florentine manuscript of Cicero's Tusculan Disputations, a work which Cicero discussed, a work in which Cicero discussed at length the Stoic theory of the emotions that I touched on earlier. And we also have a copy of the humanist Angelo Poliziano's translation into Latin of the Handbook of Epictetus printed in Venice in 1498. It was, however, in the 16th and 17th centuries that Stoicism really came into its own. So in the early 16th century, both Erasmus and Calvin spent time editing Seneca's works, and it's been suggested that Calvin's later ideas about predestination owed something to his knowledge of Stoic ideas about fate. But the real revival came a little later, in the work of the Flemish humanist Justus Lipsius. Lipsius was primarily an admirer of Seneca as well, and his dialogue De Constantia, written in 1584, presented some of the central Stoic ideas he found in Seneca as what he called an antidote to public evils. What's striking about Lipsius is that he seems to have wanted to revive Stoicism as a living philosophical movement, or at least as a contemporary guide to life. And he gathered around himself a number of pupils, including Philip Rubens, brother of the better-known Peter Paul Rubens. And Philip Rubens wrote some Stoic-inspired poetry published in a volume of his that we have on display. And in the display, we have a reproduction of Peter Paul Rubin's famous painting, The Four Philosophers, a painting that depicts Lipsius reading with some of his pupils. And Philip Rubin's is among the seated in the painting, and Peter Paul represents himself standing to the side. The whole group is watched over by a bust of Seneca, and as an aside, the ancient bust depicted in the painting is no longer thought to be a bust of Seneca, but Rubens thought it was, and used it here and in his famous painting of the death of Seneca, which is reproduced as an engraved frontispiece to one of the other volumes on display. And for those of you um, who are um, 
local to Oxford. You can find a copy of that bust, thought to be of Seneca, in the Ashmolean. Now, while the De Constantia was a pocketbook guide to life, focused on how one might draw on Stoic ideas in times of difficulty, Lipsius's major contributions to Stoic scholarship came a little later, at the end of his career. In 1605, he publishes a huge folio edition of Seneca's works, and on display we have one of the later reprints for which the original engravings were revised by Rubens. And the year before that, in 1604, Lipsius published two handbooks to Stoicism in which he gathers together all of the scattered fragmentary evidence for the early Stoics for the very first time, and these are also on display. Now, this revival of interest in Stoicism inspired by Lipsius is sometimes referred to by modern scholars as neo-Stoicism. Neo-Stoicism, so the story goes, is distinct from ancient Stoicism insofar as it proposes various modifications to Stoic doctrine in order to make it acceptable to contemporary Christian readers. At first glance, this is what Lipsius appears to do in his De Constantia, where he seems to suggest that modern Christian admirers of Stoicism ought to reject the rigid determinism of ancient Stoicism in order to leave open room for free will and miracles. In fact, I think Lipsius is more orthodox a Stoic than many readers have supposed, but the important point for my present purposes is that the reception of Stoic ideas in this period was unsurprisingly shaped by its relationship with Christianity. And it's at this point that I might mention Thomas James, who was Thomas Bodley's first librarian. James was evidently something of an admirer of this new neo-Stoic movement, as he translated into English a work by Guillaume Duver, a French follower of Lipsius, who drew very heavily on Epictetus. And in the preface to his translation, which is on display, Thomas James wrote that no kind of philosophy is more profitable and nearer approaching unto Christianity than the philosophy of the Stoics. And when half a century later, the vicar of Rotherhithe, Thomas Gattaker, published his important edition of the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which is also on display, he prefaced the edition with a lengthy introduction, championing the text's compatibility with Christianity and including a, a list of parallels with biblical passages. Now, it wasn't too difficult for these early modern readers of the Roman Stoic authors to find high-minded moral sentiments about virtue and indifference towards earthly goods that chimed with their own Christian values. But as people gained a better understanding of the deterministic, materialistic, and pantheistic physics of the early Stoics, the claims made by people like Lipsius and James and Gattaca started to seem less convincing. While Christian writers in the early 18th century began to attack Stoicism as a form of atheism, by the middle of that century, Enlightenment thinkers started to champion the Stoics for the very same reason. 
Now, while these disputes about the relationships between God and nature and free will and determinism went on, other readers continue to turn to the Roman Stoic authors as a source of practical moral wisdom, less concerned by these sorts of physical or theological questions. And noteworthy among these was Anthony Ashley Cooper, the third Earl of Shaftesbury, who kept a philosophical notebook modelled on the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, in which he drew extensively on both Marcus and Epictetus, and reflected on a range of practical questions about how best to live. Now, Shaftesbury clearly studied these texts very closely and even proposed a series of amendments to the Greek texts, some of which are recorded in the critical apparatus of an edition of Epictetus by John Upton that was first published in 1739. Now, I mention this because Upton's edition was the one used by Elizabeth Carter for the final item on display, her translation of Epictetus published in 1750. Eight. Carter's edition is noteworthy for completing the translation of the principal Roman Stoic texts into English. Marcus Aurelius had been translated a number of times by this point, notably by Merit Casabon in 1634, who coined the title Meditations in the process. The Meditations weren't called the Meditations before 1634. And Seneca had been translated in 1614 by Thomas Lodge, who simply translated Lipsius's edition that was published the decade before, including much of Lipsius's editorial material. And Lodge's edition of Seneca is on display. But the discourses of Epictetus had to wait until the 1750s before Elizabeth Carter made them accessible to English readers. Okay, so I'd like to conclude by saying something about more recent uses of Stoicism. Everything I've said so far has been about the past, and one might think that while Stoicism is an interesting thread in the history of philosophy and ideas, it's not of much relevance to us today. But it's striking to note that a number of the founding figures of modern cognitive psychotherapy have cited ancient Stoicism as a central influence. In particular, Aaron Beck and Albert Ellis have both pointed to the importance of Epictetus's famous saying that it's not things, but our judgments about things that tend to disturb us. Indeed, Ellis went so far as to call Epictetus one of the, patrons, one of the patron saints of cognitive behavior therapy. So, the ancient Stoic idea that philosophy might offer us some kind of therapy for the emotions is alive and well today, and the legacy of Stoicism continues. Thank you.